All right, it's politics and parenting. It's Jeff Mayhew. Wait, where's John Beatty? Where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. Andrew, Andre? Who, who, who took over today? Where's John? <laughs> this is uh, this is Jeff. John can't be with us today. Uh, I am joined by our guest, uh, Andre Beliveau. Um, Andre, would you like to introduce yourself to the crowd? Hey, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Andre Beliveau from North Carolina. I work at a public policy think tank uh, down here in Raleigh. I'm a graduate student studying political science and government at the Johns Hopkins University. And I think you're bringing me on to talk about an article I wrote in The Lone Conservative. So <laughs> that's what I'm doing here, I suppose. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so we had uh, Tyler Sick on the article or on the podcast last week, and he had written a um, a article about, you know, conservatism dying, essentially. And uh, you wrote a rebuttal. Uh, so I wanted to bring you on, uh, kind of pick apart a little bit about, you know, what you're talking about and see where you and Tyler seem to disagree. Um, one of the things that I, I picked up is, you know, Tyler seems to be on this, um, you know, conservatism is separate from politics, but you kind of intertwine the both, right? Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, first I'll I'll start off to say Tyler is one of my very very good friends. Uh, we we know each other very well, uh, not just on Twitter. I mean, we we were we're at, we're friends in not just online. We are we are friends in real life. Uh, so when I and I I know I know his politics. I know how he thinks. Um, I we him him and I have had these arguments um, or disagree civil disagreements, I should say, uh, privately and and publicly for for a while. Um, so uh, when I saw the article, it was not a surprise. And I was conversing with a few people from the lone conservative. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to write a, write a response. Uh, but him, we can, we talked about it. We texted, he read it before I published it. Cause he's my good friend. And I was like, well, is there anything in here that is actually going to offend you? And if it does, I'll, 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 I'll tone it back. But if you're actually okay with this, I'll, then I'm going to send it in. And, and of course he was like, no, no, it's all, it's all fair game. So we, uh, we we like the idea that we can uh, put our, our 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 ideas out there and debate them in the public square. I think we need we need uh, more of that. Um, but yeah, so Tyler effectively his his view of conservatism tends to be tethered and aligned with this idea of a conservative disposition, sort of this uh, this view of the world or how one should sort of interact with the world in a sort of prudential manner, uh, sort of this moderated view of the world uh, you know things should be done prudentially things should be slow um i'm sure he would agree that part of this sort of uh disposition or aesthetic uh are some type of moral or virtuous guardrails um he might argue they're somewhat agnostic as to being tethered to any sort of uh dogmatic view but just this this sense this sense of what he would probably refer to and i agree with sort of republican virtue uh that that, that is attached to this uh, this aesthetic, this this disposition uh, of being a conservative-minded person, uh, and I think he's right. And and as I said in my article, I do agree. I think conservatism, broadly understood, not just in the American tradition or in the Anglo-American sphere, but I think broadly speaking, conservatives of multiple different nations and political persuasions, in general, conservatives have this aesthetic. 
right? It's sort of anti-reactionary. Uh, it's very much a, typically attached to sort of the maintaining of the status quo or the establishment. Uh, it's tethered to some sort of tradition and institutions uh, that, that sort of leads one to having this more prudential view of the world. Uh, and so I agree with Tyler up to that point. I do think that is a necessary requirement for someone of a conservative mind um, and, all, and indeed for American conservatism. But where Tyler and I disagree is that I believe American conservatism properly understood uh, does also have political underpinnings. Uh, so I think that's sort of, so Tyler's conservatism sort of begins and ends with an aesthetic or disposition. Um, and, I, and I do think that's probably more because I think I think Tyler uh, is more of a, a a man of the left, even though I know he fancies himself a moderate centrist. And he is. I actually think we need more people of a uh, of the left to think the way Tyler does, which is why I wish he would sort of own his his kind of a, a political liberalism, because I think we need more people like that. Uh, because I think up until five minutes ago, uh, most people in the United States and uh, in mainstream politics were either, uh, you know, conservative liberals like Tyler would be or liberal conservatives, which I, I tend to uh, find myself in. You know, we well, we recognize that we come from a liberal tradition uh, in the United States, but there are political underpinnings and sort of guardrails that are different uh, for uh, liberals and for conservatives. So yeah. for me, I, 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 I take a different uh, role. I do think there are political underpinnings for American conservatism, and that's where I would differ uh, from Tyler. And that's effectively what I was going into uh, talking about in my article. In my articles, that no, it's not just this aesthetic, and no, um, you know, conserv conservatism can't simply be, you know, sort of a blank check to the excesses of the progressive left. Right? We can't just say. Oh, okay, that's fine. Just go a little slower, please. You're going too fast. We're okay with your ends. Just go, go. You know, just do it more slowly. That that can't be. That can't be what conservatism is. No, there has to be a. You know, there has to be some sort of, uh, you know, political and moral underpinnings. I think to say, well, yeah, okay, maybe this needs more. Uh, this does need to go slower. We need more time to think about this and be prudential and logical and cogent about this. Or perhaps, no, actually, this is bad. We think this is bad for society, bad for culture. We think this perhaps is unconstitutional, for example. So no, sort of uh, irrespective of how slow you go, this might still be bad. Uh, yeah. So I, I think kind of on the whole, that's probably where Tyler and I um, differ, is I, I do believe that American conservatism requires both the disposition and some form of right-wing politics. Yeah. So, you know, talk about those underpinnings. Uh, you mentioned in your article, the principles, um, uh, the beliefs in transcendent, uh, transcendent moral order, the primacy of individual freedom and private property, free enterprise, a suspicion of the scope of government, the political and institutional order of the Constitution and the preeminence of Western civilization. I mean, those are the underpinnings you're speaking of uh, when you're talking about that. I mean, and do they still apply? Yeah, well, I hope they do, because <laughs> um, the reason why I hope they do is because I do believe that those those principles that you that you sort of laid out um, that I wrote in the article, uh, I do believe that those are actually the under those are actually the underpinnings of, of the republic. I mean, those are the uh, those are the underpinnings of American democracy, of our constitutional order that was given to us. Uh, you know, in, in, in the 1780s and when, when the Constitution was ratified. So, and I think in the article, I said that those are sort of the, and you'll, you'll notice that those principles are not necessarily attached to any sort of policy outcomes, but those are rather first principles of the American political order. 
Right. And though, so yeah, at the at the beginning, so when we move past this this conservative disposition and we start moving into politics, I do think that the the politics on the American right, so far as policy prescriptions can differ, uh, and they can differ even amongst conservatives, but they will also, uh, uh, frankly, differ of men on the right, because um, there there is a difference, as I point to in my article, which I think we might get into later. Is I I I would submit that there is a difference between a conservative and a man of the right. Um, that that is those those are those are to me can be different things, uh, but just to go back to these these first principles, that's where con- American conservative politics begins. It begins by uh, the desire to conserve and preserve the constitutional order of the United States that's given to us in the spirit of the Declaration and then laid out to us in the Constitution, uh, which would be you know those those items that. Uh, that, that you listed out, um, you know, the, the idea of the, this uh, belief in a transcendent moral order, uh, the idea of individual rights and property rights, free enterprise, uh, a healthy suspicion, not of government, but on the scope of government. Is right. it, this actually serving the right way? Um, and, and then obviously the political and institutional order of the Constitution. Uh, th- those those are the first principles that make up uh, a, a conservative's a political view. Um, and and I'm and to a great degree, also just the the primacy of Western civilization, broadly speaking. Now, I would also say that those also should be the first principles, and I and I believe that they are the first principles of liberals that who I would dif, who I'd say are different nece- necessarily from uh, progressives in the modern sense, because what those first principles are is the liberalism of the founding. Uh, again, right. our, our constitutional order. We all belong to a liberal political tradition. That that is what is given to us in the Constitution, in the Declaration. Uh, we we belong to a liberal order, uh, and then within that liberal order, the politics can differ either on the left or the right. But American conservatives, uh, who have right politics, we are men of the right. We are still seeking to conserve uh, those those principles. And, and I again, I would submit that liberals on the left would and should it operate from those first principles uh but then of course our politics and then our politics uh you know which i think you start with a with a philosophical political view and then by extension that turns into policy outcomes of course those will differ from liberals and conservatives and then even amongst liberals and conservatives those would differ uh but i think a major difference here is that um populists both on the left or the right whether that's progressives uh, on the left, or you know, more uh, you know, a right-wing populace, they don't, ne- they are not necessarily married to those first principles. So um, I, I think they, I think they might be more willing to sort of abandon those first first principles when they get get in the way of specific uh, policy outcomes or political outcomes that they might want. Yeah. So I mean, I I definitely agree. I, I agree that the these are the principles of our founding. I agree that. You know, both populist and progressives, which, you know, tend to be kind of similar in a lot of aspects, you know, they're trying to force change, you know, maybe it's change for the sake of going back, maybe it's change for the sake of going forward. But, you know, I think sometimes uh, conservatives in history sometimes get left flat footed because they don't want to change. Maybe they're a little too stubborn. They don't want to progress forward or they don't find the right balance of progressing forward. You know, they hold they don't go in that slow, uh, methodical way that they should. So I was wondering, like, when do you think, like, we as conservatives, when should we know when it's it's time to take a step forward, um, as opposed to holding the line until you're kind of met with this opposite power that's pushing you forward? Yeah, no, I think I think that, that that's a really good question, right? And I think any conservative would always sort of at times struggle with this question 
right? Because I don't know that there's necessarily um, perfect check boxes that one could always fill to say, okay, once all of these boxes are checked, it's okay to change. Uh, because I think it, it it's probably specific on the kinds of change we're talking about, right? So I think that's maybe the first thing is that for a conservative, you would say, I think if there is so, if, insofar as there is a uh, guiding principle, the first question is, is it necessary to change? Uh, yeah. and I think I, I think I actually quote. I, there's a quote in my article uh, I, um, I I pulled from uh, from the English Civil War actually, where it says uh, oh, if it's sure. if it's not if it's not necessary to change, then it's necessary not to change. So I do think uh, necessity or a need is probably the first thing. And once you establish that, okay, perhaps there is a need or necessity, then I think through a matter of prudence, you would want to look at okay, why is it necessary to change? Why why is what has not been working? Uh, that's the case. And then what are some things that we can do to fix it? Um, you know, what are what are logical, reasonable steps that 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 can be uh, you know taken to fix this? And I think for conservatives, you always want to try to operate within the institutional order. Right. Uh, so it's you always want to try to operate within the, the, the institutions, the current status quo to try to enact this change. And of course, at times that you can realize that that's not possible. And then that's where, okay, reform may be necessary. But the gut reaction for the conservative is not blow it all up, change the system, change the institution uh, in order to enact change because that we this needs to happen now or, or this isn't working. I think uh, a conservative should always have that gut check as to saying, well, no, uh, institutions matter, tradition matters. And I think a perfect example of this in the present day for us, uh, you know, which I think is to sort of differentiate the sort of reactionary politics of the populist new right today versus conservative politics. I mean, I think the Federalist Society is a perfect example, I think, in the modern era for us of of prudential conservative institutional change. It did not happen overnight. The, the Federalist Society worked through institutional norms, worked through the the, the first principles of our constitutional order by, by first uh, you know, promoting and engaging originalism as the right ordered, uh, you know, sort of uh, jur jurisprudence for judicial, not only just judicial review, but sort of legal uh, statutory interpretation, right? So they took a claim to say that originalism is uh, the, the the proper legal theory that we that as conservatives and that we believe was given is the is the right ordered uh, judicial and statutory interpretive theory given to us by the founders. So they started there. Uh, and then through, you know, through working through the institutions of both government and think tanks, NGOs, uh, through academia, you end up getting to a point where you have a conservative majority on the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade. So, um, I, so I'm just using that as an example, I think, as an, as an I mean, yeah. as, as the Federal Society is an institution, a conservative institution, using the institutions of government and change that existed to actually make a conservative uh, make you know conservative uh, advances in the modern era. So I think I think they are a good example of of what I'm talking about. So you know I'll um I'm kind of torn on this with the Federalist Society because like I see I see how they did things and why they did things and I I I recognize that they definitely work through the institutions. But what they did I think is they you know that whole movement over the last thirty years or so has pushed people to understand that the Supreme Court has a significant amount of power that it really shouldn't have. Um, and, you know, these these issues uh, that they're 
trying to solve, they should, they're best solved through legislation, realistically, and oh, focusing, I, you know. Yeah, no, I, well, let me, let, let me stop you right there. I mean, I think anyone who's read Robert Bork or Antonin Scalia or any of these, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the bulwarks of not only the Federalist Society, but also the, the conservative legal movement. I mean, that's been their, their policy prescri prescription for decades is that, you know, uh, if you want to make these changes, change the law. You know, it's not up to a judge to to change the law. It's it's the judge's job to uh, interpret uh, statute. And yeah, sometimes there's there are things that are stupid, but they're also constitutional. Uh, and we might not like those things, but there is a there is a means in the Constitution to amend it, and that it is not up it is not up to judges to legislate from the bench. That is up to the people via their representatives in their state legislatures and in the in the federal, uh, you know, in the federal legislature and Congress to uh change to change laws. That is not that's I mean, that's been their modus operandi. And and that's correct. I mean, that is that is the job of uh, of the judiciary. So I think right ordering the judiciary from uh sort of uh you know liberal or left-wing judicial activism has been a bulwark of, of the federalist society i think it's been incredibly successful i mean we have not only a conservative majority on the court but amongst those conservatives a majority of them see themselves as as an as originalists one of the primary goals of the organization was to uh overturn roe v wade which was uh, unconstitutional and wrongly decided they sent it back to the states that's federalism in action i mean that is that is how you do it. Uh, so I, I think, I mean, so, we can just we can disagree on, on, on all of that. But I think just as an example of what I'm of what I'm putting forward, they 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 came to mind as sort of a classic example of how conservatives should use the institutions uh, rightly, you know, and sort of right order those institutions instead of coming in and saying we're just going to arbitrarily drain the swamp, blow everything up, and try to start some sort of new right order, which I think is incorrect. Yeah. So I mean. I agree. Everything they did is how the system works. It's it's right. What I think what I'm trying to kind of get at is through that process, what it did is it attracted a lot of populists to that movement to take hold. Right. Because they were able to give people an easy answer to their problem. Right. Because the real answer to their problem was you need to be more involved locally. You need to be in contact with your representative. You need to be telling them that this is important to you, that you need to write legislation for it. And that's really difficult to do for a leader really far away from the people. But it is really easy to say, if you nominate me president, I'm going to get this conservative on and they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so what the people hear is, hey, this guy's going to solve my problem. I'm going to give him my power. I really don't care about all that other stuff. Um, and, and I don't blame the Federalist Society for that. I just think that that's what happened. And I think that, you know, you know, who among us or what leaders among us represent that conservative side of the federalist society in legislation in congress you know like who would you who are holding down those principles and getting things done right now as our leaders and that represent us right so so i guess to sort of get to sort of start a new, yeah, <laughs> a, new tangent, a new tangent i guess away from and again i was using the federalist society as an example of some of, a, of an institution that I think has expressed this well. But I think what you're asking me is, are there leaders amongst us who are sort of representing those sort of first principles that we were talking about before, who sort yeah. of maybe best example, who may, who maybe best exemplify sort of having the conservative disposition and these conservative politics effectively being a conservative, not a populist, I guess, is that what you're, is that what you're asking? Yes. Yeah. So Again, and I think it's difficult sometimes, right, because not everyone is always going to fit the bill all the time. I think there's obvious examples 
of people who definitely do not fit fit this bill in, in modern times. It's the first person who comes to mind, I think, of someone who right now, because uh, again, and, and I mean, conservatism is, is really dependent both on time and place. Uh, that is to say, conservatism in the United States in 2023 is obviously different than conservatism in the United States in 1800. Although, of course, those these first principles of you know the first order of our constitutional order would be be the same. I think it is important to recognize that coalition building and, and things uh, have changed over time. Uh, that being said, I think the modern modern American conservatism post post war modern American conservatism has not changed that dramatically. Policy prescriptions have certainly changed, but this idea of the disposition with the underpinning politics have not changed dramatically. So in saying that right now, the first person that comes to mind to me would probably be Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. So why do I say that? Um, I think to me, when I'm thinking of someone right now in the political mainstream of the American right who has this conservative disposition, he comes to mind. He is he's not a, a uh, you know, a flamethrower. He's not lobbying hand grenades. Uh, he's a you know, he, he is has the rhetoric that we expect from a chief executive. And I do think that that is important uh, in American in American leadership, uh, particularly in executive leadership, whether that's president or governor, uh, you actually should be able to articulate uh, the the ideas of American exceptionalism quite well. And I think he does he does do that. He, he's quite erudite in, in how he speaks. Uh, so he has that. His politics also, I think, are he has he has figured out a way, which I think is very conservative, to interweave the the necessary elements of the current culture war uh, by with also but balancing that with your sort of atypical Republican politics, uh, you know, the fiscal policy that we sort of expect, lower taxes, uh, trying to again trying to down, uh, uh, reform the scope of government. Uh, but he's but he is not but he's been unafraid to tap into some of the culture war stuff with education like CRT and some of the gender ideology stuff in schools. Uh, so he, I think, has I think right now he is demonstrating um, a, a, a he's pretty much the 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 example in a in a very he's done this in a masterful way, I think, on how to do this right now in our in our current political environment. Uh, so if there's a political leader who I think closely resembles that, I think it would be him. There, There's probably others. I think, I, I mean, I, you know, I think in Congress right now, I think Senator Mike Lee displays this very well. I think Senator Mitt Romney displays this very well. I think Senator Tom Tillis, one of our senators here from North Carolina, displays this very well. Uh, so there are there are there are several, I think, in the, the sort of mainstream GOP. Uh, and those are just to name a few off the, the top of my head. I'm sure there are others, and I, I just I won't give a huge laundry list right now. But I think there are several right now who are doing this well. They are because again, it uh, it is not it is not to say you can't be involved in the culture war. That's important. Conservatives care about culture, uh, but there's there's a way we talk about that. There is a there is a prudential way to deal with the policy prescriptions. And again, the disposition does matter. Uh, so yeah. those are people who those are those are just a few people. And again, I think Glenn Youngkin right now is just the exemplar amongst the the, the GOP mainstreamers um, who people have floated around as potentially rising to the top of maybe a presidential bid this time or the next or maybe in 28, uh, who I do think best exemplify what I'm talking about when I'm thinking, uh, you know, sort of the the ideal of of American conservatism properly understood. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm in Virginia. I, I, uh, I knocked doors for Yunkin when he was running. I got to meet him a couple of times. 
Um, I would agree with you uh, that, I mean, I have some differences with Yunkin because I'm in the state and I own a small sure. business and all that different type of stuff. So, um, but I, I, I do think it is, I think, you know, being somebody that's watched him very closely from very up close, I could tell you that his, his, and I, I'm hesitant to call it rhetoric because he's not like the other candidates, like you mentioned, but it is a little bit of rhetoric has changed significantly from the day I met him to now. Um, and he's mu he's moved way far in on those culture wars, further than I'd like to see from where he started. Um, I was well, very I, drawn into him at the beginning, yeah. and I understand like I understand the politics of it all and 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 voting. I just I don't know. I I'm an optimist. I feel like you he could be as successful or more successful if he kind of dug into the roots of small business as opposed to. Um, you know, giving it up to money, which is essentially what he's doing in our state. And then he could build off of that movement as opposed to a culture movement, because I think that's where, at least where I am, that's the big concern is like, you know, people around here don't feel like they have any type of say in, in small business versus big corporations. And, you know, they watch him talk about the, the social things and education and they support him, but they hear him cutting deals with, you know, big time Silicon Valley, bringing in and selling away our real estate when we don't have enough, you know, for the supply of what for Virginians and they are not as happy. So, sure. you know, I, I think he's he's highly influenced by his donors and it shows in his policies. And, you know, I don't necessarily. Is that conservatism if it's just, you know, if it's not real, you know, <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, quite frankly, I mean, quite frankly, it's politics as usual, which I mean, I thought, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's conservative, you know, conservative or I mean, I do think I mean, uh, again, there are, I think there are different policy prescriptions amongst the American right, uh, just because someone just because someone is a conservative, which I, I do. I do believe uh, Glenn Youngkin is a conservative and fits the bill of what I'm talking about. That doesn't mean that everyone's policy prescriptions are always going to be. Uh, the same. I think there are, there are different conservatives who will arrive at different policy prescriptions. Uh, but I do think he definitely he definitely represents a return, uh, good good, bad, or indifferent. I would submit this is good uh, to sort of politics as usual. I do think we need a little bit of that. Um, I do think you know he is someone who is operating within establishment norms. Um, I submit that's a good thing. I want establishment candidates. I want people who are going to uh, make good policy decisions for the most part, make good political uh, prudential change and maintain the status quo and uh, peel back uh, pro liberal progressive overreaches that we have experienced. Uh, I want someone who is going to do that through institutional and established norms. And I do think he is he is doing that. We can disagree on different policy views. I mean, I'll give you an example here in North Carolina. Uh, you know, our Republican General Assembly just expanded Medicaid. Uh, you know, that is uh, there are the now the majority of the politicians that are in the North Carolina General Assembly who are Republicans. I mean, I've worked with them for them and around them. Most of them, I would say, uh, are the, the, they have they have both a conservative disposition and conservative uh, politics. Of course, there are a few populists or new right uh, Republicans among them. But for the majority, they are classical conservatives, properly understood. Um, and they made a poly policy decision that some conservatives would disagree with. There are some conservatives, I think, as a policy prescription who would say, 
that expanding Medicaid was the wrong thing to do. There are other ones like the way some of them have articulated it who would say, well, this was the right time to do it now. And these are the fiscally conservative reasons why we think if we don't do this, it would be bad for the common good of the state. Why it's, you know, why 10 years ago we said no and why today we're saying yes. I think that's an example of there doesn't make them less or more conservative philosophically or politically just because they had a different policy outcome. And I think this is something that's important too, kind of getting back to the disagreements I had with Tyler, that yes, of course, the disposition is is necessary, sort of differentiate a conservative from a from a populist. But the the politics of the right, you know, the philosophically, I think it was James Caesar from UVA, uh, and Matthew Cottonetti has borrowed from this a little bit in some of his works, that American conservatism as a coalition, modern American conservatism, post-World War II as a coalition, effectively has four heads with one spirit, right? And there's effectively four philosophical streams within American conservatism, uh, and that's traditionalists, neoconservatives, libertarians, and the religious right. Uh, and effectively, you need all four of these things tethered together, because when one of these things sort of when one of these four philosophical underpinnings rises to the top, you're out of whack. Um, if it's all if it's all the sort of libertarianism of uh, this focus on uh, spontaneous order, you're moving away from uh, elements of the religious right that are important to conservatism. You're missing elements of tradition of the traditionalists who care a lot about uh, customs and tradition and those first principles. Uh, so the uh, modern American conservatism requires those four heads tethered together, operating as a coalition. Um, and, and when the, when they are doing that, every, it is sort of a checks and balances system. And that has what is prescribed the right, the sort of right wing mainstream politics post World War II is, is, is those four elements. Uh, and then, of course, there are. And even within those four streams, I would submit you do get populist elements. Um, it's just when I think. You know, when when someone asks me, you know, how do you differentiate a conservative from a populist? Um, I think populists and conservatives, in many ways, have similar politics. They are they are men of the right. Um, the first difference I would submit is the disposition that Kyle, that uh, Tyler talks a lot about, and then I mentioned it is that prudential way that I that non reactionary view of the world. Um, populists, by definition, are reactionaries. Uh, they, they, that is, that, that is, they are uh, anti-conservative in that sense. Um, but also, I think they would break away from those four heads of the one soul because that one soul or that one spirit of American conservatism that those four philosophical views are tethered to is the constitutional order, right? Um, so it is, it is, it is, it is, it is the established norms of our of our constitutional order. So, and I do think to a large degree. Um, right-wing populists, the sort of post-liberal, the, the kind of the post-liberals and national conservatives of the intellectual new right, and then the sort of MAGA Trumpers of the grassroots new right, they are very comfortable moving away from those from those uh, first principles in a very reactionary way. And that's how I would differentiate them. So a um, couple of things on that. So the, the MAGA side specifically, you know, I talk to a lot of people that are like locally here that are Trump supporters or have been Trump supporters. And the the thing that I take away from a lot of them is they understand how government works. They are traditionally conservative, but they're just really angry at how poor their leadership has been over the last 30 years. Hmm. And they've kind of just ceded their power to this guy. And they kind of understand that, like, look, it's not working. Conservatives aren't making the change that they need to make. 
Sorry, a little cough here. Oh, you're fine. Um, and so they've just they've given it away, and you know, pushing back on you know, can a can a certain conservative be a populist or vice versa? And what I would say is, there are plenty of people out there that understand these principles that would be a populist conservative movement if they just had the actual leader to like lead them. And there are other people that maybe are disengaged that don't understand that also are looking at what's going on and going, it just isn't right. And when they hear these basic underpinnings that you describe these principles, they go, hey, that's what I am. I didn't know what I was until you told me, right? Because I haven't bothered to think about this before, but now I want... I want to I want to be involved. And mm. I think that, you know, if we're going to make some serious change, I think what we're dealing with is a populist movement and we can't ignore it. Right. Like Bernie was a populist. Trump was a populist. DeSantis is moving towards that populist, uh, you, you know, nature um, to because you're going to have to have that to win an election. So if you're a conservative, your focus should be how do I tap into the populist movement you know, John and I personally, what we're doing is we're teaching people government locally here. We're bringing in progressive, we're bringing in Trump supporters and we're going, hey, you know, all the things that you feel inside that you just can't explain here they are in words. You were right. These people aren't, you know, necessarily representing your values or your your uh, principles that you want. They're just kind of seeking money and seeking power. But here is how you elect somebody who actually cares. Here's how you actually elect a conservative um, and giving them the information. Right. And then hoping that grows because I don't know how you make change otherwise, realistically. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've, you've, you've mentioned something I think that's that's really critical here. So, I mean, I do think particularly in the grassroots of politics, especially when we're talking about elections. I mean, the American right uh, has always had elements of populism to it. I mean, conservatives are propelled by a, uh, at times and almost all the time, I think might be fair to say some elements of a, of a populist base, right. That's always going to be present. I mean, even, I think Ronald Reagan is a good example of this. I mean, much of his rise to the presidency was because of, of, of populist grassroots, but he was not a populist leader. He didn't come to the presidency and say, okay, I'm here now. I'm going to blow the whole thing up. He was able to make conservative change by harnessing the power of the institutions of government, right ordering them through his, uh, you know, the, I mean, he was probably more, I mean, he was, I think he was actually a good example going back to those four heads uh, of sort of balancing out the traditionalist elements, the neoconservative elements, the libertarian elements, and the uh, the the evangelical right or the the Christian right. Again, those four elements, right ordered, sort of helps the, the, the so those are the philosophical underpinnings of the American right. And I think he he demonstrated that in a good way. So I think what you're talking about here is nothing new. The difference is is who that leader is. Um, if populists are propelling a populist demagogue, I submit that's bad. If right. populists are if populists are being are part of a coalition to lift up a conservative leader, that's different. Uh, and I think that's the case that we had in Ronald Reagan, where you were through a, a, a you know a populist grassroots political movement, you propelled a conservative leader. Uh, I would say that that was not the case with Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not comfortable yet saying one one way or the other uh, if that's the case with like a Ron DeSantis. I think we can kind of see perhaps where that's going, uh, just again, through his rhetoric, he seems to be more of a populist leader, but he does have some establishment elements to him. Some of his recent hires definitely seem that he is tapping into 
the intellectual new right, which should be concerning, I think, to conservatives. Um, but again, I so I yeah, so I, I think that the problem here is not necessarily the grassroots uh, populace. I think it is who they're propelling. Uh, and also, unfortunately, what has happened in the last just couple of years in the American right is that populist grassroots has become such a cult of personality around Donald Trump. That is very dangerous. Yeah. Um, I mean, you so you and again, I, I, I think it's important to differentiate the new right uh, in two streams because there are the intellectual new right that Tyler and I and people like us spend a lot of time on on Twitter and writing articles talking about these people. These are, you know, your Yoram Hazonis of the world who are propelling national conservatism. These are your Adrian Vermules uh, of the world who are uh, putting forward a, a, you know, common good constitutional theory, which is intertwined with uh, integralist or uh, integralism uh, views, very post-liberal uh, I views of right-wing politics and that 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 kind of makes up the framework of this intellectual um new right and they are they are indeed they're they are a problem they they are and again I think I said in my article they sort of Im import European forms of conservatism and slap an American flag on it I mean yeah. that is what they're doing they when we if again if we go back to these first principles if you are not operating within the constitutional and political norms, from the liberalism of the founding, which is again, very different from progressivism today. But if you're not operating under our political order established by the constitution, you're not conserving anything. You are you are a reactionary movement that is going against the political order of this country, which means that in America, you cannot be a conservative. That's yeah. just, that's how, that, that's just how this works. I mean, that's why, I mean, let's go back for a second. Like, I love side sidebars and tangents. So like, let's go back to 1775, right? A conservative in 1775, was a Tory, right? They were they, a conservative in 1775 of, of in the colonial America. Was that was Sam Seabury in the? If anyone is a fan of Hamilton in the song where uh, you know he says, "This Congress does not speak for me. You're playing a dangerous game." That's a conservative in the in uh, the colonial British North America. You know that they were trying to hold it together as much as possible. I mean, eventually a coalition is formed from these sort of uh, disenfranchised royalists. Who are un, who are not happy that Parliament has usurped the authority of the Crown and said, okay, um, you know, and they form a they form a coalition with like the the Thomas Paines of the world to eventually form the American Republic. But once the Republic is formed and we have a Constitution, that breeds a new form of American conservatism, which is predicated on the Constitution. You know, if there was people storming Independence Hall saying, "Burn down this." Constitution, government, big governments, bad drain the swamp, you know, ripping up the Constitution. And as, as it was being drawn up, those are not conservatives. So again, if, if you are reacting, you are in a reactionary way against the political order that was established by the Constitution, you are not an American conservative. conservative. So we have that intellectual wing, that post-liberal intellectual wing, who is very, who is not interested in the, the political liberal order established by the founding. Um, I think that's wrong. They have their grievances. I, I think they they propel some some good criticisms of 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 things. But I, again, I think they sort of lack any real prescription on how to fix some of these things. But they they are they're not as big a problem, I, I think, right now, as a lot of people are giving themselves to. They sort of exist in these pseudo ivory towers. They have their very insular publications. They uh, ex exist very terminally online. The problem politically right now on the American right, I do think, is in the grassroots political movement. This this MAGA movement that has become a cult of personality uh, attached to Donald Trump, 
but the which is a problem because you know the the Republican Party and American conservatism cannot be any well, one one man. So well, I, I, just to finish this, this quick tangent, I think I think the the political movement that is is sort of circulating around this Trumpism does have some politics, and it's very anti-establishment, uh, very super critical of government, super critical of institutional norms, not just governmental, but things like uh, empirical research, peer review, uh, things that uh, our educational system, things that undoubtedly need reform because of progressive excesses. But to suggest in a reactionary way that all these things should be kind of tossed aside and, and burned down, I think is problematic for a conservative movement to to survive. And and also I think be electable in the future. Well, so that brings me to to something that I like to talk about a lot. So um this the politics like that MAGA sphere, I think is like the really one the the ones that really want to burn it down are it's a much smaller number of people than you know I think a lot of people see. Most people out there, like I mentioned before, they just feel disenfranchised. They just feel like they can't get anything done, whether it's at the local level or the federal level. It's really hard to to be in contact with your representative because, um, you know, in my opinion, the districts are too big. The it's really hard to make change if you're a regular citizen because it's too expensive to run for office. Um, and what this does is it puts a barrier between the people um, and the people that are leading them, and they're not able to communicate. Um, so that leads to the question that I am, I ask people all the time, uh, is 435, uh, the right number for the representatives of a country of a hundred, 330 million people? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, I mean, it's an excellent question, right? I think that's something a lot of us, a lot of us should be asking. I mean, I, I definitely, I don't know. And, and again, this is something obviously that I think would require, uh, conservative prudential change. I don't think going in there in the, in the same way that I think expanding the, uh, you know, uh, or packing or expanding the Supreme Court is a bad idea. I don't know that we necessarily need to jump in and say, let's expand Congress. <laughs> um, what here's, here's what I would say. I think before, before, and, and quite frankly, I've not given much thought to, do we need to have more congressmen or expand it? I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I understand that obviously, uh, do you know are we properly represented at the federal level Poss maybe maybe not I, I i don't know that i'm i'm prepared for an answer uh to that but what, what i think i would say to sort of your kind of the underlying premise that you you had to this yeah i i don't think i think of course people are going to feel the way that you've expressed i think all of us even those of us who are more engaged in sort of establishment politics uh, have felt this. I think a lot of us, that's what got us into politics is you, people usually tend to come to politics through grievance. Um, I think anyone that comes to, through politics through happy, good feelings, that's a problem that some, that should be solved. <laughs> Someplace so, else. so what, let me, let me jump in there because here's what I, I got into politics for grievance. Same, you know, exactly what you said. I'm just a regular person. I'm a dad of five. I'm looking at the world and I go, somebody could do better. Let me see, let me be involved. Right. But mm -hmm. what I've noticed is that the people, at least locally, that are making the decisions, they're running the campaigns, they didn't get into politics before because of grievance. They went to school for politics. This well, is their job. And they've, they're focused on winning elections. And they're not focused about talking about problems and policy. And I think that, you know, 
that that again is part of that separation you know um it almost would be better if people got in because of grievance but it's people that are running it got in for a job and then they're they're using the people that came into it for grievance to like win elections as opposed to talk to them right well i mean i say this as someone who's getting a master's degree in government in political science <laughs> uh, has, <laughs> has 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 worked has worked in the state legislature in various roles and also works at a public policy think tank uh, who spends a considerable amount of time in D.C. I mean, I, I have a cologne that is, that smells like the swamp. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I may not be the best person to speak on this, but I can speak only for myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think like, look, you have to enjoy what you do if it is a job. And for, I do politics and policy professionally. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, I mean, as a jo any job, it doesn't matter politics or if you're whatever you are, uh, you should probably, to the best of your ability, enjoy your vocation. That's part of uh, the part of the elements of human happiness. I think if that would be a piece of the puzzle. But I, I I do think, and like for me, how I got to politics was my passion wasn't necessary to be involved in politics. My passion was for uh, the the kind of the 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 exceptional nation that was given to us. I, I did my undergraduate degree in history. And I think a lot of people who fall in love with with history or who fall into these elements of founders chic or American exceptionalism, those are the good feelings that when you come across a grievance that propels you into maybe getting into actively involved in politics. And I would say even the people who are in politics, like myself, because of jobs, there is still an element of, of grievance. Because like for me, I got propelled into politics, you know, having gone through different waves of you know, in my young, you know, in my younger, you know, early 20s, being, you know, probably more, well, considerably much more liberal than I than I am now, and then sort of falling into my politics in my mid to late 20s, and I'm 33 years old now. So, I mean, you know, you you kind of go through those political spheres, but seeing things that I did not like, uh, the direction of the country, sort of going away from this, this, uh, what I believe should be the good of the country uh, is what got me involved in politics. There were, I mean, there were probably, I, I could probably go back and think of specific policy things that I disagree with. I mean, obviously now that I'm involved in politics, I can point to those things. But I think even the people that get into it for a job and, and enjoy it, like, like I do, there is still an element, maybe it's not a specific grievance, but it's out of a desire of service, which I think is equally important. So I do think, I do think there's, an, there's, yeah, I think there's, a grievance to like, yeah, I don't like the way the country is being served or I don't like the direction of the country. So I'm going to get involved, you know, or it could be a specific policy thing. But I, I that to me should propel the people who are running for office and the people who are in leadership or the people who are not necessarily running campaigns because I've done the campaign thing and you have to be somewhat crazy to do campaign work forever and ever and ever. But the people who get involved in government service or public policy advocacy some way, whether they're elected at NGOs or their staffers, that you have that has to come from a desire for service, not self-service. At its core, yes, of course, a lot of us are involved in careers and you have to be mindful of your career because that's the vocation that takes care of your family. But at the end of the day, you can do lots of other things that do that. If you choose government service or or political service, some form of public service, it has to be out of a desire to want to help the people of your local community or your state or of the nation, depending on what role of government you're playing. Um, so, and, and I do think that that's, that is important. I think that's been lost um, in a lot of ways, but, and, and to your, what you were saying before about these people who sort of feel disillusioned or disenfranchised and that that's kind of these, these under, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to, you know, they're not these hardcore committed right-wing populists or extremists who want to burn the whole thing down. They just feel these 
genuine grievances and they feel like the, their elected leaders have not lived up to that call of service and they want to fix it, that's a good thing. We need we need more people like that. The unfortunate thing, I think, is that we we haven't necessarily given them the the, the leaders that they deserve. Well, so because um, I think you do, like I was saying earlier, you need you need a strong leader, a good conservative leader to to fill that void, because if it's filled with a, a populist demagogue, we run into problems. But I think as conservatives, we need to be focused on the local. Um, yes. I think we need to be much kind of forget what's happening in Washington. I mean, I do think that is obviously very important. We need conservatives there, again, to reel in the scope of, of government and make sure that federalism is being brought uh, back to where the way it should be popular, uh, you know, uh, uh, properly understood. But where I think conservatives should be focusing their attention politically now is on their state legislatures, on their city and town boards, on on their uh, elected school boards. That is that is where conservatives should be focused, um, and that's where our that's where we should be driving most of our attention. And I think that will actually give us better results long term. Again, it's not going to be change overnight. This is going to take a while. But I think the grievances that a lot of these people are feeling. And the uh, the policy outcomes that we that we are are seeing uh, from pro from progressive overreaches that we want to reel back those are only going to happen locally. Um, I yeah. I 100% agree with you there. I mean, local is where it's at. That's how you make change. That's how the system's created. You know, um, I think what what you see is. Um, the populism seeking into the local level, right? The culture wars seeking into the local level, the misunderstanding of how things work, the misunderstanding of um, what should be an important um, quality in a representative uh, government official, a, a, a politician, essentially. Um, you know, when you, let's say, you know, I got involved locally first as a regular citizen. I went to my local party and the first question I was asked was, about Donald Trump. I didn't give a satisfactory answer and there was no contact made. I was not given any information to come back, right? <laughs> I had to follow up several times to be involved, right? And and then when I got there, everybody was really nice. They, you know, we found a lot of common ground. Um, and then, you know, they presented, hey, you know, you should run for office. The first thing you need to know to run for office is to how to set up a political pack. You need to know how to fundraise. You need to do this. And like, that's where all of my flags were sent off because it's like, no, I don't believe that's how the system should work. I, you know, I studied American history and I don't remember any of that in the founding, you know, learning how to, uh, you know, fundraise being a qualification <laughs> for office. And, you know, my thing is, you know, as a father with teaching my children is, look, if you want to be successful at something, you got to be focused. This idea of fundraising and running the campaign um, with dollars, it's the antithesis of being focused. You know, if you're focused there, how are you going to actually communicate with the people that you represent? And yeah. so I think we we're in this situation where it's like, OK, you've got to have people who understand the system and are working locally and are, you know, they're they're a populist in a way because they they want change and the change they want is for a functioning system, right? It's not necessarily anything radical. It's just like, hey, you know, I, I'm a personal believer that a PAC system is basically money laundering. It's an indirect form of uh, corruption, which our founders were very 
you know, concerned about when they were writing our constitution. They had the whole thing with um, the snuff box with Benjamin Franklin and the, uh, <laughs> the uh, articles of confederation. And so it's like, but we just ignore that. And as citizens, like, you know, as a regular person to just be like, hey, the first thing you need to know is not how the government works. It's not, you know, your community. It's fundraise. It's money. And um, I don't know. I, it's just uh, I think we, we got to have more focus at that local level, like you mentioned, and then give people the information at the local level and hold the people running for office or the parties or whoever's in charge of that system accountable and make change there so we can have the right people. You got to create an environment where these leaders can actually live because I think so many of them are like me. They hear that and they just disgusted by it. And they're like, and most of them just go home, right? Because it's too hard to build your own environment. You just want to fit into the environment that's already there. And when you find out that environment's hostile, you just leave because otherwise you'll be converted into that creature or you'll wither and die. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And I, and we're, I guess, you know, and kind of we're talking about different uh, we're talking about but through this conversation that we I think we've kind of inter in, you know, we've interweaved from the philosophical to the kind of pragmatic right. side of politics. Um, and I've and I've lived in both worlds, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I that's why I, I you know sometimes it's like you know all right am I speaking from the more intellectual philosophical side or am I talking about my ruthless pragmatism with politics because you, <laughs> you get you're going to get a very different different answer. Um, but I, and I think experiencing both is important, actually. And also, I think people, in, you know, sort of in trying to interweave those things are also important because I do think that'll help balance things out. I think you're 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 hitting on something here, though, that that is important about. Um, I actually think that there is something deeper here, a deeper issue that we have, which is sort of basic civics um, and basic understandings. I think that's something that I think a lot of us still take for granted is that. Most people, everyday Americans, have a strong grasp on how the system works. That is to say, just how government works. What are the first principles of the American political order? Um, and you come to find out, I think, through conversations with, uh, which was with people that not everyone's read the Federalist Papers. Um, not everyone's actually even read the Constitution, um, or you know, uh, you know, like, or they've not read to Tocqueville. And then you meet some of these people at your county GOP. And if you start, co you know, uh, quoting like Burke or Russell Kirk, they're <laughs> going to look at you sideways. Um, but they're very familiar with like, you know, a, a different Kirk who lives online today. Um, and you know, so uh, this is a problem, I think. And again, I, I'm not, the left has their own problems. I'm not as concerned with them because I'm a conservative and I care more about our conservative movement philosophically and politically. And that's why I spend a lot of time writing about, talking about, and thinking about, I'm not dismissing their problems of which there are, there are many. Um, I still like to think they have a lot more problems than we do, but maybe that's, I don't know. Anyway, uh, but I, I do, I, I do, I do think that, um, yeah, there, there's, I think this is a cultural thing that does cut both ways uh, in American culture of any political persuasion is that civic civics education is, is down. Uh, right. Civic engagement is down. Um, and these these are these are cultural things, and I think I mean I listened to the podcast last week with 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 Tyler, and, and he was saying how cultural change shouldn't happen through government; it should happen through local communities and institutions. And I agree with that. I think that's right. However, I'm, I'll push back a little bit. Um, I definitely think it's wrong for the federal government to have any so be putting their thumb on the scale for these kinds of cultural 
Uh, I think as conservatives, we should be concerned again with the scope of government. And when the federal government starts putting its thumbs on the scale of you must conform to the national, you know, to the national they them regime. I'm just using that as an example, um, you know, just whatever. That's, that was probably a bad example. But anyway, I was trying to be somewhat humorous. But if you're to, <laughs> for, the, for the federal government to sort of put the thumb on the scale and say you must conform to whatever the cultural regime is and everyone must conform. Um, I think that's bad. That's wrong. Progressives try to do this, and I think it's wrong. And I think something like the, the NatCons, the National Conservatives, want to do that. You know, they're they're okay with federalism, so so long as you conform to the national regime. Uh, and I think that's wrong. I do think you know we have fifty states for a reason, um, and we have different towns and communities. So I do think, obviously, we need some type of social cohesion uh, through law and order and that there needs to be, you know, uh, shared laws. There needs to be, of course, there has to be, there's a role of the federal government to play domestically. But what we're talking about here is something that can only be achieved through, I think, the local, uh, through, through cultural shifts that happen within families, that happen within church communities, uh, that happen within, you know, within businesses and through, through friends. But I do think there is a role to play here for local governments, um, whether it's city governments, town governments, maybe even state governments to a certain degree. I do think that as conservatives, we should be electing mayors and town village trustees and boards and state legislators who are going to, obviously within constitutional order, not violating law uh, and not violating principles of individual rights and property rights, et cetera, and the things that we enjoy as American citizens. But I do think there are policy prescriptions for some of these cultural excesses that we're experiencing right now through progressive overreach. Um, I do think there is a place for government, particularly local government, maybe from this the state level down, to to sort of put in these, these guardrails, whether, I mean, it's a lot of these culture issues that we're debating today, particularly when it comes to our youth. Yeah, I do, I do think as conservatives, uh, we should be electing people to enact reasonable policy to address some of those, but that should not be... Um, that should not be absent any or any sort of organic societal change that comes from families and friends and local organizations like churches or uh, you know lo local like volunteerism. Um, you know, so yeah. So I think there has to be a, there has to be a reflourishing of civic engagement and I, at the local level, and I think that that government probably cannot do. Yeah, um, I think we, I think we can that that specifically government cannot do. Um, unless, you know, you want to make requirements that you need to learn, uh, you know, like maybe the Constitution in order to graduate school or which I mean, I think I think that's very reasonable that you should have a basic civics education uh, if you're going to a state a state school where the, the state has control over the curriculum. I, I don't I don't see something like that. I don't think is on on um, an unreasonable thing to to expect. So, again, I, all that to say that I do think the more local, the the better. But I but I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to say there is not a role for local government here to to address some of these these concerns that, that a lot of us have. Yeah, I mean, we we see that in a in history a lot is leaders talking about how civic education or an educated populace is you know important for a thriving Republican structure, right? And you know, I think again, you don't want the federal government making these regulations. The state governments can do this. You know, basic civic education as a requirement for high school shouldn't be out of the question. Um, and you know, it doesn't have to be overtly political. You just, you know, you teach the Federalist Papers, you teach the Constitution, um, and you you 
teach the story realistically of, of how we, we came to be. Um, and then, you know, kind of diverting a little bit or, or back to that local is like, what is conservatism? You know, how do you make change? You know, my, my idea is like, if, if there's this big populist movement out there that's disenfranchised and they believe themselves to be conservatives at heart, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, what are you trying to conserve? And I think for me as an individual, I'm trying to conserve community. Mm. Like I'm trying to conserve that small group where I can have say over my life. Um, and that's through the means of local government. Um, maybe you get represented or have some discussions with federal government, but for the most part, it's just the, you know, the small town community feel that we used to have in a lot of places, but we've kind of lost. Uh, what would you say about that? Yeah, that I think spot on. I mean, that's 100 percent right. And that that has to be part of uh, the conservative movement. I mean, that it, that is I mean, that attaches not only to the, the disposition of the conservative aesthetic, but I think there are politics and policy prescriptions that allow that kind of thing to flourish uh, and also and also to subvert it. Uh, so I think to conserve or uh, preserve and maybe even resurface in many ways what you're talking about. Yeah, 100 percent. That needs to be part of uh, of an American conservative movement going forward culturally is, um, you know, trying to bring back that. Set. And, you know, the, and a lot of people will say that there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, and that's I think that's true. I mean, I think a lot of people will, you know, I mean, you can look at like the political rhetoric between like, you know, <laughs> Adams and Jefferson, for example, um, you know, things that were written. I mean, there's always been these kinds of tensions politically that, you know, I think any any conservative, uh, and this is something that's very popular on the new right, they will harken back to some golden age where the streets were gold and everyone was, you know, tipping their hat. Good day, sir. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. And like, sure. Like, you know, like, it's nice to think about, but there's always been some elements of, of you know, uh, you know, we haven't, we have, there's never this like golden era that they that this utopia that they like to yeah. think about but i think even from i mean even in my own life life lifetime i mean i was born in 1989 and i think so growing up to into where i am now i can even sense that there has been a huge shift locally and and in culture and how people interact with each other um you know i think even for my parents generation and my grandparents generation even more so felt so it is it is that there there is you know you know, we're not we, we're not going to recreate some utopia that never existed. But I do think there is a element of social cohesion that has been lost. Yeah, I, I do think there's I mean, I don't know that there's one thing like people will say it's social media. It's the cell phones. It's whatever. It's, you know, you know, and then they'll they'll then, of course, name their least favorite liberal policy. And that's the thing. It's or or it's this type of person or these people. Uh, and I think all of that's wrong. I think, you know, there's something more about, you know, I'm sure technology has, of course, impacted this. Um, and then, you know, COVID really just sent us back even even further. Um, but yeah, I, I do think you're right. There is a element of social cohesion, particularly in local communities, that is uh, palpably different. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the old saying, I, I, I can't, I don't know that I can necessarily describe it, but I can, I can, you know, I know it when I see it. Um, and I think we all, I think anyone who's being honest with themselves has felt that in the last several decades, that's, that something is, something has 
shifted. So yeah, I do think a a conservative move in the United States that has to be part of our our mission, our driving force, is to try and fix that, to try and reintroduce not only civic engagement but interpersonal relationships. Um, the art the art of civil disagreement. Right. Uh, I mean, just basic civility and Republican virtue. Um, not the idea that we have to necessarily agree, but that we can agree to disagree. Um, you know, I mean, even liberals and conservatives in not, not that long ago were, you know, obviously they had different policy views and everything else, but there, there was a basic, there were basic elements that everyone sort of agreed upon. Uh, we knew how to act in, you know, with each other as gentlemen and impolite company that, that is, that is definitely shifted. Um, and it's unfortunate that that has shifted on both the left and the right, that there is just this antagonism that sort of underpins our everyday life. Um, yeah, and I think that is a that is that, and that is a that is a problem that I do think conservatives need to rightly try to uh, fix, and I do think we can fix that in our. We should always start with our own personal lives first, and our right. own families, right? Make sure that we're raising our children in, in those those ways, and that you know we're we're trying to be the best the best you know husband or spouse that we can be. We're trying to be the best father you know that we can be. We're trying to be the best neighbor that we can be. Um, that's important. That should definitely not 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 be lost. And, and of course, I think anyone of any political persuasion should do that. But I do think it is incumbent upon what a, a person who is of a conservative mind to be more mindful um, of doing that to, to sort of foster what Russell Kirk talked about, that we are a community of souls. Right. Uh, and I do think that that is an important part of the the conservative persuasion. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, um, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. You talked about, you know, COVID and, you know, I think it just COVID and technology just kind of separated us from ourselves to a large degree in a very quick time time period. I think we were we were always moving that way, but we were moving that way at a at a pace. Right. And then COVID just sped that up. And I just don't think people were ready for it. I don't think that it was necessarily the full direction we should have gone. And it um it hurt a lot of people and, and it's, it's broken a lot of people's like way that they interact. I mean, I see it all the time in just day-to-day -day life. I see it with the kids coming out of high school with the way they communicate. They struggle at looking you in the eye. They struggle at basic relationship stuff. And at the end of the day, you know, politics is relationships. Life is relationships. You know, you have the better civil debate when you have relationships with the people you're talking about. You know, you, you talked about it, Tyler and you guys are friends. You disagree, but you disagree civilly because you have respect for each other and you know each other. When you are on a television screen or on a computer screen a thousand miles from someone and you're never going to see them face to face, you're probably a little bit and you don't have a relationship with them. You're probably going to pop off at the mouth a little bit quicker. You're going to be a little bit less respectful. Um, it's, you know, it's the reactionary part of human beings that are whole system was kind of set up to balance, right? Like we we keep on talking about it and in, in you've mentioned that word a bunch of times today um, is, is this balance between all these different um, voices of society or as Matt, Madison would say, all the different factions, right? And so when this balance is broken up and it's not built among relationships anymore or communities anymore, it's built among packs and parties and and you know new rights and and progressive lefts yep. it's it's separated itself from the people that they lead you know so um 
I, yeah, I think that's right. And you know, it's it's funny because the, the founders would have been, I mean, there's, there's a lot that one can say ab about this. I mean, I do think the sort of, I, I also think that the, the secularization of American society has a lot to do about the, this. Not to say that anyone necessarily has to be like the majority of the founders were, you know, like, you know, part of, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition. I do think that helps to a degree. Um, someone to be religious uh, that or, or have a a form a, a formed spiritual practice i do think that is something that is good for for society so i think that is that is one element that's that's probably been uh been lost but the founders would have understood a a, a actually more uh secular kind of enlightenment view of um equilibrium you, know, you mentioned balance they created a government that was predicated and based on equilibrium that sort of you know government sits on the base of the constitution uh, I mean, I mean they, they created a Republican monarchy. The Constitution is the king. <laughs> I say this all the time. The Constitution is king. That is the king. Long, <laughs> may, long, long may he reign. Uh, and they they established they established their their king constitution and then formed a government around that that was predicated on equilibrium, shared and separated powers, checks and balances. They lived in a society that was predicated on. It had moral guardrails. It had virtuous guardrails. Uh, which allowed this sort of balance and equilibrium to exist because they did envision a pluralistic society. They obviously weren't very good at it from the beginning and in a, in a lot of ways, but we know, I mean, you can read, I mean, they had a, they, you know, and it took us a long time to fully live up to the promises of the declaration and the promises of the founding. And in many ways we are still live, trying to live up to those very high standards that they, that they gave us. Uh, and at any point in time in American history, it's always been, We've been in, you know, sort of a juxtaposed between our lofty goals and trying to live up to them uh, in many, many different ways. But again, once you lose, once you lose the underpinnings of the political order, once you lose the underpinnings of the moral and virtuous guardrails that were that are supposed to uh, keep society in check and in order, and a lot of those are interpersonal. Government can't solve those problems. Um, once you're out of equilibrium. Once you're out of balance, that's a problem. So I, I do think a lot of what is incumbent upon conservatives is to restore that equilibrium, political and cultural. Uh, that is not to say we can't have change. That is not to say that things need to be, uh, find a timestamp in history and you can't go any further. But restoring equilibrium, restoring balance, politically, socially, economically, uh, those are uh, those are that is the that is a prerequisite of that should be your mission as a conservative. And if you're not trying to do that, then I think that that's a problem that is antithetical to to conservatism in in our in our political tradition given to us. Um, and that's why I think the progressive left can't answer those those problems for for liberals because they don't have that underpinning like liberals properly understood would do. The same for us with the sort of the new right uh, reactionary populists. They 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 can't solve that problem. Uh, for us, they, that is that is untethered from this uh, established um, order that we've been given, and I think that's that's something that's very important for us to conserve and, in many ways, uh, restore to the best that we can. Yeah, I agree, and I think uh, I could probably go on for hours talking <laughs> about this, but I, we're kind of winding down here. Um, I I really appreciate you coming on the uh, show. It's been it's been a great conversation. Like I said, I could totally nerd out on these things. I don't get a lot of opportunity where I live to talk to people who just in like you said, it's a labor of love, right? Like you go into something if you're going to be successful at it, you gotta 
understand it and love doing it. And uh, obviously you do. Um, it's been a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely, Jeff. Thank, thanks for having me. And uh, hey, ha feel free to reach out anytime. Happy to chat offline anytime you want. Absolutely. And uh, for everybody local, uh, remember, April 22nd, we have our Sphere of Power class held at Giuseppe's from 4 to 6 p.m. You can RSVP on MadisonianRepublicans.com. John is very sad he missed the show, but he hopes to see you there. And remember, peace and love.